Welcome to CJSW Writer's Block, broadcasting from the University of Calgary at 90.9 on your FM dial. I'm host and producer Dimphony Dronick. I'm host and producer Cody Dronick. On this month's episode, we sit down with local writer and poet Anne Sorby. And later on in the program, we have an interview with Joanne McCaig, who is in the studio to talk about her new book, An Honest Woman. Our show airs on the third Wednesday of every month at 8.30 p.m. And if you've missed it live, you can check out the podcast at cjsw.com. Anne Sorby was born in Paisley, Scotland, and she lives in Calgary. Her fiction, poetry, essays, and book reviews have been published by the University of Alberta Press, Frontenac House, House of Blue Skies, and Thistledown Press, and in magazines and journals throughout the literary community. She has taught English and creative writing at Red Deer College and Mount Royal University. Anne Sorby, welcome to Writer's Block. Thanks, Symphony. Thanks for having me. We're, we're really excited to have <clears throat> you here. And I'm holding your beautiful little book that is about such huge ideas. Um, it's really fascinating how it's, you know, the, the immensity of some of the topics that you, you're discussing in this beautiful little book of poetry are so distilled into these brilliant little poems. Tell us a little bit about how this book came to be. Okay, well, there is, despite the fact that it's poetry, there is a bit of a story or a narrative behind it. And it started one day when I was, my husband's son and I were pulling into an L-shaped boat slip. And I did what I had done a hundred thousand times before. And that was to jump off the front with a rope in my hand. In that instance, I missed the dock. And I fell between, so at the side of the boat, I fell between the boat and the dock. Unfortunately, my right heel got caught on the bow rail. So I did a very undignified version of a pike, one-legged pike. I heard a giant popping sound. And the common tendon that holds up your three hamstrings and attaches it to your sit bone came off. Ouch. So I was left dangling by some miracle, holding dock and boat and screaming in between. And had it not been for the fact that our son was there, I might not be here today. Did he leap in and first pull he, you out? Or? First he held the boat away from the dock, you know, yelling at his dad to cut the motor, which um, was still running. And then he jumped over me and literally scooped me up like a baby and plunked me on, on the wood, on the planks. Wow. Yeah. That is really one of those freak, <laughs> horrific accidents that happen in a tiny moment and then go on to radically alter your life. And it did. It did. I had actually just accepted a couple of, well, just weeks earlier, a corporate job in Calgary, writing verbiage for the president of an international company, having left um, a job at Red Deer College where I commuted. And it really wasn't a good fit. So I had been, I had hamstrung myself in that case, taking this job and committing to it where it was something that really wasn't a good fit for me. Mm -hmm. And then this happened, and all of a sudden I was hamstrung in a very real, very literal sense. Right. 
So the book is a little bit about uh, your recovery journey, a little bit about um, how it is to be a patient at a certain phase of your life, waiting for our wonderful medical system in some ways and our, I gather, kind of exasperating medical system in other ways. (laughs) And you take us on that journey, um, also weaving in myriad literary references, which I thought quite beautiful. Tell so tell get take us through, you know, the synopsis of the journey, I guess, and then uh, I'm really curious how you came to those literary references too. And there's one particular line in the book that I thought maybe this sums it all up. And the line was, you think yourself mad, so you write. Yes, absolutely. So after falling, this accident happened in BC. I had to return to Calgary. And as you say, um, I had to negotiate my way through, through our own Alberta healthcare system. Now that meant trying to get to the only surgeon, and probably in all of Canada and in the northwest part of the U.S., that would consider repairing such an injury. And he's right here on this campus. Wow. Um, at SportsMed, University of Calgary SportsMed. His name is Dr. Nick Matadi. But I had to go through a lot of um, hoo-ha, let's say, to get to him. And But they were just going to le- leave your leg unrepaired? Yes. What does that look like? That would have meant I could have, I could not... Um, kick. I could not do anything that involved a kicking motion, nor would I be able to bend my my foot behind me and lift my leg um, behind me. I would be walking by swinging my leg out to the side rather than, you know, sort of ambulating the way that we all, you know, take for granted. Mm -hmm. So yes, he was the only surgeon who would repair it. Um, but first I had to sort of get in the queue, see someone at sports med and get an MRI. So um, in that case, I could, I could have gone into the queue for six months or more, um, not really knowing what was wrong. This was the trouble. Nobody really knew what was wrong. Um, or pay for the MRI myself which, and have it the next day. So because this was such an odd thing, that's basically what we decided to do. So when I got to SportsMed, they basically said, it's as bad as it could be. The common tendon is detached, and there's a six-centimeter gap between the top of your tendon and the bone. So um, I kept up the pressure, sort of phoning, begging for appointments, and, and luckily was able to see Dr. Matadi. To, and once he saw me um, and decided that I would be a good candidate for the kind of rehabilitation that it would take to, you know, sort of reinstate a normal, for the most part, range of motion, he repaired it two days later. And it was right around this time of year. It was Thanksgiving. Wow. So if you hadn't have been that kind of hardcore advocate for yourself, your life would have been permanently... Yes. Altered by this. I would not be running. Um, There's a lot of things that I 
that I can do now that I wouldn't be doing. There's only two things that are not recommended. Um, downhill skiing, because the heel is attached. If I go over the front of a ski, it's greater than 90% chance it's coming off. So, and the same the same for water skiing. Right. And two things which I dearly loved when I was younger. Yeah, but I think um, sometimes the way we're triaged as middle-aged women, and I was 47 at the time, um, is not so good because I don't, I didn't need their limb repaired for work. Um, and I was healthy. So in triage world, that meant I could afford to wait, you know, right. where, where someone who needed their limb for a job and who was probably less healthy may not have been able to wait as long or potentially as long. Yeah, I, I'm a little bit familiar with that because when my son um, tore his shoulder, there was a very long waiting period. But when we finally got to Calgary, uh, up north, it's even worse, these yeah. kind of triage situations. Um, the, the sports medicine doctor here on campus said, um, well, he's basically, well, kiddo, you're lucky. If your mom had this injury... She'd probably be waiting two or three years, but because you're an athlete and you're young, mm -hmm. we can move this forward. Mm -hmm. Now, is it really, you know, I, I don't think I'll ever forget that. I mean, that that is our reality. And it's a very strange thing. It is. Especially um, for people who are very healthy. Yeah. And I don't mean that in any, any derogatory way. I just mean that... Um, you know, apparently, if you're healthy, you can wait longer. Which and can result in you becoming not healthy enough to qualify. Right. Or the, or the thing that you needed to have repaired by the time you do get to see someone is not repairable. It's no longer repairable. So I was very lucky right. to get to see uh, Dr. Matadi. So how, so how long so, was it? You, you were lucky enough to get in... I earlier than sort of the, the the original estimate and then you you had to learn how to heal and mm -hmm. go through the rehab. So this happened in August of the of the year it occurred. Um it was repaired here in Calgary by Thanksgiving. It was actually the Friday of the Thanksgiving long weekend. And um during that time I was taking various kinds of uh, painkillers, some of the kind that I've never, I'd never taken or experienced before. And so even then, so before the surgery and after the surgery, I had a lot of time for reflection. Um, and being the mother and stepmother of five now grown children, um, I really didn't give myself a lot of time for the thing that I loved, sometimes more than my children, I'll even say, which is a creative life, which is that idea that, you know, of writing. Mm -hmm. It was an idea. And I suddenly had long stretches of time in which to contemplate and in which to write. In fact, you know, I had a lot of friends come over to visit and some said, are you watching much daytime television? <laughs> <laughs> to which I replied, no, I'm writing. 
So yes, writing indeed saved me. And even though what I was writing at the time made no sense, but it was an outlet for me from my hand to the pen to the page, whatever it was I was thinking about. So these poems are, um, you know, a number of years to be crafted from something that may have started out as a journal entry Mm -hmm. into, um, you know, a form, a poetic form that made sense, that could help me build this story, which is a very odd and different story. Yeah. So in poetry, language has such an impact. You know, you're always looking for the perfect word. I'm fascinated by how you used very obscure words, those medical words, the the words that are inside our bodies that we don't think about, the specific name for the tendon and the muscle and the layer of skin. Um, Tell me more about that. Well, I suppose when I look at, as a writer, when I look at um, this idea of building images and trying to show on the page what it is that I'm thinking about in my head, then one way that I would do that is basically to dissect that image that I have, take it apart, and look at the, the smallest parts of it. So when it came to looking at the body, and in this case, the female body um, as well, going below the skin and mining those different layers of anatomy became really important. And um, the language of the body is really the language of the collection. Mm-hmm. Also, the technical language of the body that we don't spend as much time with, usually, mm-hmm. unless that's our profession, right? <laughs> and, uh, well, a little bit of history. At one time, um, I was enrolled in, in physical education. And so I, I've, I do have a basic anatomy course. So when... Um, the sports med doctor and the surgeon began talking to me about what was broken, what had been torn below the le- be- below the skin. I did have some understanding of that, that the hamstring is made up of, you know, our hamstrings are three muscles, mm-hmm. semitendinosus, semimembranosus, and bicep femoris. And they all join at the top to this common tendon, which then suspends them from our sit bone. So when that is when that attachment is broken, the femur, which is the largest bone in the body, is then com- is quite destabilized. It's almost miraculous how our body fits all together and how one tiny little thing can have such a catastrophic kind of a domino effect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely, it did, yeah. I couldn't sit. I could only sort of half lie down. Um, I couldn't bend from the waist after. Um, you can't um, go past sort of 90 degrees from the waist. And I woke up from the surgery with my leg in a black brace, which I had to go and get fitted for beforehand, in 80 degrees of flexion at the knee. So my knee was immobilized for almost two months. Wow. 
And each time I saw the surgeon, he would slightly increase that degree of flexion towards my my leg being straight again. But it is, um, the body is a remarkable thing in the way that it heals. Mm -hmm. There's absolutely no question about that. So it gave you, it changed your life. It turned everything upside down. The job, I've understood you, the job that you had just got um, maybe wouldn't have been a big, a great fit. So you came to that revelation. You had time to write finally. And I'm getting the sense that this all happened some time ago. And in the meantime, you've written other things. Is that right? That is correct. Um, Yes, that is correct. I I had also written a novel, Mm -hmm. Memoir of a Good Death, which was published in 2011. Um, So this hamstring injury really forced me, in a way, onto my own writing path. So something that I had probably denied myself in favor of so many other things over the years, as women do. Mm-hmm. You know, we're mothers. Um, we have children. We have families. We have husbands. We have all kinds of things to look after. So in my case, many of those things always came first. Right. And the uh, creative creativity was in the cracks, as it is for many of us. That's right. That's yeah. right. So um, in a way, it was a gift in that um, I was forced onto that path. And it was really interesting because once I began walking that path, um, things started to happen. I published a short story. Um, I got the news that the novel was going to be accepted. And um, I was writing every day for hours and hours on end. So So in a way... Um, what happened in a serendipitous way was indeed a gift to me. So um, I read all kinds of things that I didn't give myself permission or time to do more than give a cursory glance before. And one of those things um, was Sylvia Plath's mirror. Mm -hmm. I found myself looking at other pieces of work that involved mirrors, including... You know, thinking about Robert Croach's Demeter mm-hmm. character in The Stud Horseman, who was in a bathtub looking in a mirror, which was reflecting scenes from the outside. So I found myself on for long stretches of time, maybe on my bed, thankfully near some windows, and in an area where there was a mirror. Right. So I also saw things that were reflected from the outside to the inside. And um, as well, you know, saw parts of myself that I probably really wish I didn't have to see at that time. Mm-hmm. And that's so that that is one of the recurring themes in the book, little snippets of different mirrors and reflection. Mm-hmm. Mirror images, yeah. Mm-hmm. I also noticed uh, a music a music thread running through it. How did that come about? 
Well, I was, by the time I was out and walking, I was out one day walking and uh, met someone who taught piano. And so, long story short, I started taking piano lessons. <laughs> <laughs> so, there were some, there's some basic threads there that have to do with um, the piano and the way things are played and the way things that we, the, the way that we perceive things, you know, some things we hear that are grand and glorious and loud and other things are so quiet and so soft and so still and at the same time so beautiful. So for me at the time, all of this stuff connected. You know, I was, I was entering sort of a level of my own consciousness that I, I really hadn't acknowledged before. Um, maybe even reaching at sometimes this thing that, you know, lots of poets recognize or artists recognize as that thing we call the duende, mm-hmm. right? So, um, again, I just have to keep coming back to the idea that this horrific occurrence actually turned out to be a gift in my life. Or at least you turned it into that. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've always had a strong sense of hope, right? I've um, I come from a very hardworking um, Scottish background. We didn't have a lot of stuff growing up, and um, but we've always had laughter and hope, and um, it didn't matter what happened. That always existed in our lives, even if it was only a tiny glimmer. You know, in if if we were in a very dark or challenging place, mm-hmm. so I'm thankful for that, that capacity to dream, and to hope. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and to have the support of people around me. So, in you know, back to the sort of medical side of things. Afterwards, I had you know permission to have physiotherapy. After it was determined that the the new attachment was strong enough, so on a weekly basis, I saw a physiotherapist two or three times, then um, someone for, you know, sort of rehabilitation type exercises, which would also help me return to regular mobility. I saw a massage therapist and I saw a woman for healing touch. Hmm. So um, recovering, you know, and walking this journey or, or, trying to move on this journey towards walking again, um, you know, was my hope. And, and all of those people gave me hope. Right. My, my other curiosity about that was, I wonder what you learned about not just the, the moment of creativity, but because you had some time to sit with these words that came out of you um, and then had to go through the whole rehab of those words, working with editors, um, you know, having to keep coming back and polishing. I'm wondering if there was a parallel there too. Oh, that's, I think you've made a great one. You've drawn a great parallel there. And I'm one of those writers that used to think whatever spills out onto the page should be perfect in the first instance, you know, and I think um, going back and reworking and editing isn't all on my own work is not always a favorite thing. Mm-hmm. Although I take great delight in helping other people do that. So I did do that. 
um, quite a lot. Um, when I was able to sit for lengths of time, I came back to the campus and um, registered for a graduate level course in poetry with Tom Wayman. Following that, and kept working on the same poems, um, and what you have in the book here is a very pared-down, um, sort of spare example of the plethora of poems that I wrote over those years. And then um, when I thought I had something that was collected and, and that really made sense together, um, then I worked with Kimmy Beach, you know, who's in Red Deer mm -hmm. and who is a professional editor, editor. and poet herself and published, you know, many, many books of poetry. And, um, you know, she gave me some really good and very strong feedback about what might be in and what should possibly, you know, be left out of this book. The proverbial darlings that <laughs> yes. we have trouble seeing in our that, own work. That's right. That's <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, so... Working with Tom Wayman and working with um, Kimmy Beach did teach me a lot about um, recrafting and crafting and different ways of coming at your own work, whether it was, you know, traditional forms mm -hmm. or looking at um, sort of paring down the language so that, so that it was less narrative and more um, to do with the images themselves. So only the words that brought those images into the sharpest of views are those that I hope are, are left in the collection now. That very distilled form of the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Huh. So I think my last question is about how you worked with notes. Because they're footnotes, but they're not at the foot. They're at the back of the book. So tell me about that. Well, um, I suppose I consider myself to be fairly traditional when it comes to poetry. Um, you know, I like the traditional forms. I like the sonnet. I like quatrains. I like couplets. Um, but having said that, it's really nice to be able to break those down too. Um, what was that question again? Why are the footnotes at well, the, the end footnotes, of the book? The footnotes. And so when the manuscript was in progress and I was in the, the poetry manuscript class, um, it was perfectly acceptable to have the footnotes there, both for the professor and for my colleagues in the class. By the time I sent the manuscript to Kimmy Beach, um, and others, I think at one time Robin Reed may have had a look at this, and, and they both said, these footnotes detract on the page um, from, from the flow of the words and from the readerly experience, so take them out. Mm -hmm. And so I did, and I submitted a couple of places feeling like there was something missing. I'm also old-fashioned in thinking that even if we find words and ideas in other people's work, I believe that we should still recognize that. Right. And so the notes at the end are to, um, um, you know, 
To honor that. To honor that, basically. Um, So that's, they're at the end because my editors advise that. But they are, you know, they're there because I want to honor the fact that um, these words and some of these ideas are from other people. I mentioned Sylvia Plath's poem, Mirror. Um, There's another poem at the center of the collection called Echoes of Diving into the Wreck, which was a profound poem, that, a, a poem that had a profound effect on me when I read it. And so this, this poem of mine is absolutely an echo of what Adrian Rich had to say about women's lives mm-hmm. and about searching and about diving into things that sometimes we really don't want to look at. So I wanted to make sure that, that all of that is there, that I'm honoring these other women these other women writers. Yeah, so that if the reader wants to <clears throat> understand the ode or the inspiration of it, they can. Yes, absolutely. I, as, as a reader, not that it matters, but <laughs> I, I really loved coming to that big, juicy section and and the fact that it hadn't detracted, because I find that too. I mean, I want to know, mm-hmm. but I don't always want to know at the bottom of the page, halfway through the poem, because that's where technically... It should go right in a right? text in a textbook. In absolutely, a textbook, yeah. That's where you would find those notes. So, um, but yes, I'm all about honoring um, the honoring of other people's work as well. And and yeah, as I say, those ideas that you know, a seed of an idea that you see or hear in someone else's work, I think it's very important to continue to honor that. Cool. Well. <laughs> Perhaps after all of this talk about the poems, you could give us one poem and read it for us. Sure. Yeah. Just out of reach. There's a girl with long legs and wide hips, bikini thin, reading in the next chair. The tilt of her head, the shape of her ear, the bun in her auburn hair are much like your daughter's. Even the bandana on the crest of the forehead reminds you. She reads quickly, looks up often, chin jump-jerking to see who's who. There's a girl with delicate arms and full lips, distant cool, just out of reach in the next chair. Anne Sorby, thank you so much for coming in to CJSW Writer's Block today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a joy. Up next on Writer's Block, owner of Shelf Life and Freehand Books, Joanne McKaig describes herself as unusually bookish. She writes, edits, teaches, reviews, talks about, publishes, and sells books. Joanne was in the studio to talk about her new novel, An Honest Woman. Joanne McKaig, welcome to CJSW Writer's Block. Thank you for having me. You're here today with your latest novel, An Honest Woman. Please tell our listeners a little bit about this lovely, intriguing book. Oh, well, thanks. Um, So An Honest Woman, um, it actually began on a drive home from Saskatchewan. Um, A big part of my writer's life has been the uh, Saskatchewan Writers Guild retreats at St. Peter's Abbey near Munster. The Um, fabled abbey. Oh, it's, it's just the greatest place ever. And I started going there in the 90s. And um, 
I think it was the summer of 2004. I'd been there for my two-week stint, and I had been working on a piece that was very difficult, very bleak, um, really hard to write, and I pushed through it with a great sense of relief, and then I got in my car on a beautiful August day, and I'm driving through these canola fields, and, you know, the sky's blue and the fields are yellow. And, oh, and I should mention that, though I didn't realize it at the time, I was also menopausal. So... I'm driving through the canola fields, and this erotic fantasy pops into my head. And I'm driving along, and I'm going, whoa, this is weird. Where did that come from? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, 50 miles later, there it is. It's still bubbling away. And Something going, about a monastery, Joanne? No, nothing at all. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, uh, it's an erotic fantasy about two writers. The, the man's quite famous and the woman's an emerging writer. And um, as the miles went by, it, it was so persistent that I thought, wow, I think I might just write this down. But like not in any writing it down, just writing it down. So um, I, I didn't want to keyboard it because that would feel too like too much of a commitment. So, uh, so I, when I got home, I sat in a chair with a lined pad and a pen, thinking, well, if I just do four pages a day, that'll be fine. And the, my hand just flew over the pages, and it, and before I knew it, I had I had a hundred pages of this sto- this love story between these two characters called Leland and Jay. And then as I looked at it, I thought, there's some interesting thing. Like there's an erotic part, there's a romantic part. But there's also power struggles, there's misogyny, there's the way the literary world is set up, um, there's writerly ambition, what does that look like? How does writerly ambition connect with romantic ambition? I, I just thought... And their love for stories. Yes, yes. Yeah. So I ended up, as the years went on, and there were a lot of years uh, between the initial idea and publication... I just, I sort of built these layers around it that asked questions about about some of those things. That's a very long answer to a short question. <laughs> but it, it, it speaks to um, all the various levels within this novel. <clears throat> um, much of the press about an honest woman mentions the challenge to the reader. And... I mentally prepared myself for having to pay close attention as a, as a result. And I thought, you know, I better not read this late at night because <laughs> it's going to need all of my brain. And I only have a little brain. And, you know, but it's not. It's like a fun romp. It's, well, yes. it's a sexy page turner. <laughs> dare I say a romance. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it is meant to be... Um enjoyable. It's meant to be fun. It's meant to be a literary puzzle. Um, I think any, you know, all anyone who writes, writes the kind of thing that she would enjoy reading herself. And I love that kind of literary puzzle. I love books that, that don't just hand me things on a platter or in a nice, neat little package. I like having to participate and think and make meaning and figure stuff out and put stuff together. So uh, yeah, that was part of what I wanted to do with An Honest Woman. So so the layers I built around Leland and Jay's story, I created a character named Janet, who is the author of Leland and Jay's story. So she's living 
her very boring life with rebellious teenagers and all the problems of uh, single motherhood, and she's trying to court this guy who really isn't interested in her, unlike her character Jay, who, like, you know, has this wonderful romance going on. Poor old Janet's kind of struggling along. And uh, But all what I, what I seeded into Janet's story also was the way Janet's writerly life intrudes on her real life and how, as she goes through the process of writing the book, she's also fantasizing about all the great stuff that's going to happen once the book comes out, the interviews on CBC Radio, and so on and so forth. So, uh, yeah, that's part of the fun of the book. But um, people did get a little confused, so I actually created... um, I don't know. I don't know what you call it. It's an indication on the on the pages of the book, some arrows that indicate whether we're in fantasy or in reality. Now, how did you find those? Did those work for you? As a as a literal visual person, kind of boring. Mm. That was really helpful. Yes. Because there was a good cue to go. Okay, wait. We're plunging into a different fantasy or a fantasy within the fantasy. Right. So yes. it was easier to keep it straight. Yeah. And I didn't find it distracting. You know, it, it really worked. Yeah. And and I thought it was endlessly playful to to think about the creating of a story um, and also what happens after, your hopes around, you know, because writing can be a real slog. <laughs> you have to stick with it. And yes. if you didn't, as a writer, have some carrot dangling of, you know, the end... Yes. And what would happen, all the wonderful things that may happen as a result. <clears throat> yes, and rarely do. But as you say, it's kind of the carrot uh, that dangles before the horse to, to keep it slogging away. Yeah. yeah. So within these, these you've, you've called it an, the, the layers of an onion or, you know, the Russian doll structure, um, the story within the story, there's also uh, layers of, you know, you talk about other books, for yes. example, and um, what was important about that? Well, it's just it's part of my uh, nature as a as a grumpy old uh, retired English professor that I just I mean I I have to throw in lots of literary allusions just to make sure you're bloody well paying attention, <laughs> right? But uh, but to me, yes, and also any. Any writer is is standing on the shoulders of who whoever who's gone before. So of course, yeah, I've got I seed in there references to Margaret Atwood, to Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. Margaret Lawrence is a huge is hugely important to me as a writer, even though people don't seem to be reading her much anymore. But of course, I had I had to have Lawrence in there, and then the possible identity of the lover in the uh, in the romance story called Final Draft, I was just hoping people would have some fun with that and wonder, hmm, I wonder who that guy's based on. It's a little bit like reading Hello Canada, you know, like, who was that? (laughs) (laughs) Could it be, could it be this person? Could it be that person? It was fun. Yeah. And and when I think of it, I remember sitting in the audience, um, and watching Shakespeare in Love, which, which 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 has a screenplay by Tom Stoppard, right, who's highly literate. And what I noticed in the theater was the movie was accessible and enjoyable for everyone, but there were jokes in there that only a person with an MA in English literature would get. Mm-hmm. And and so that's that's kind of um, 
what, what I'm hoping for an honest woman, that anyone could read it and enjoy it. But someone who's a bit of a book nerd, a little bit literary, might enjoy it even a little bit more. Yeah, just those other little threads. Yes. Yeah. Your characters make some sharp and, and wry observations about the, the drudgery and also the joys of teaching literature to post-secondary <laughs> students. <laughs> so that seemed like another layer of, you know, some of the things that you'd like us to think about. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I taught um, English uh, at U of C for almost 20 years, and um, I, I thought it was, it was just too much fun. I couldn't believe they paid me for walking into a room and talking about books. And, uh, and the real reward is, is, you know, seeing the lights go on in people's eyes when they go, hey, I can understand a poem. You know, a lot of students walk into a room and think, oh, this poem is way smarter than I am. And I worked so hard to get students to think, no, I'm up, I'm up to this. I'm, I'm smart enough to tangle with this poem. We can take this apart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or even, but I also discouraged them from, I don't know, thinking that, that it was a problem to be solved also. I, I, I tried to talk to them about the whole experience, the music of it, how it makes your body feel, what it, what you, what it, you remember what you think about when you read it. So, no, I, uh, I loved uh, teaching. And uh, though I must say, when I taught my last class in 2009, I did kind of um, go on to the next thing very happily. Yeah? Yeah. So what were the next things that you went on to? Well, I decided that um, Calgary didn't have enough independent bookstores. So uh, I opened one. And um, I have no head for business. I've financial uh, statements totally put me to sleep. So I found a, an old friend who has business experience, Will Lawrence, and the two of us together founded Shelf Life Books. And that's almost 10 years ago now. Wow, already? Yeah, yeah. And it and what a hotbed for all things wordy. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It, it's, been, it's been so much fun. It's, um, for me, it's been another way of being bookish. It's a different way of being bookish, but still being around people who love words and language and reading and thinking and talking about books. So yeah, it's been a blast. And it seems to stand as a, a real vibrant, a really vibrant symbol of how the book is not dead, contrary to all <laughs> <laughs> rumors thereof. Yeah, it's been, it's been very gratifying to Will and I and everyone who works at the bookstore that that people really do wish us well. You know, they want us to stay. So people do show up and they do make a point of coming in and buying from us rather than all the other easier, more frictionless ways to buy books. Uh, I, I really have felt in the 10 years we've been, been in business that, um, that the community's behind us and supports us. And, and that's, that's really meant a lot. Because when you go there, you're not just buying a book. You're buying a whole lot of love, it seems to me, too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's a place for conversations and for uh, for thinking and interacting with other people who, uh, who like books. One of the coolest things that's happened at the bookstore was um, Julie Sedevi started a, a book club right after Trump's election, I think where she wanted to get liberals and conservatives together to talk. So this... To share ideas yeah. rather than argue. Right, yes. exactly. Yeah. And, um, and now the book club's been going for years. It's called How Can You Think That? And um, 
if you even walk into the store on a day when the book club is taking place, you just get a feeling like maybe there's hope <laughs> for the world, you know? Yeah. yeah, more yes and conversations where we're trying to understand one another. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's the antidote. <laughs> <laughs> so your your characters in An Honest Woman wrestle with the nasty realities of competition. Mm-hmm. Lit, you know, competition mm-hmm. as writers, who's famous, who's not. Mm-hmm. Um, misogyny. Mm-hmm. At, there's, there's a passage, I believe, at the end where the more novice writer is asking oh, the, man the of more letters exalted and the woman of letters. Yes, yes, yes. writer for some feedback and it, it isn't very nice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And she really does recognize it as not very nice. Like mm-hmm. she doesn't, it doesn't crush her. Mm-hmm. It makes her defiant, in fact, mm-hmm. which I liked. <laughs> um, you okay. know, and there's a certain amount of treachery in the literary world and also in academia because of that whole layer of competition, right? Yes, yes. So yeah. why did you put that in the book? What do you want us to think about? Oh, okay. Well, that's in the book because... Um, uh, I've lived in that world. That's that's the real world that you and I both live in, and it can be uh, uh, monog- uh, misogyny is real, and um, competition and backstabbing in both the academic world and the literary world are are certainly real. Um, I deal with that most directly in in Appendix One. So. Um, in my first book, I offered a couple of endings, and in An Honest Woman, I just offer a whole buffet of endings. I seem to have trouble with closure, unlike my character, J.M., who really likes it. But um, So I have three postscripts, one for each of my, uh, my central characters, and then I have two appendices. Appendix one sort of talks about, it's, it's sort of a a little play between a man of letters and a woman of letters. And the man of letters uh, says some things that are totally outrageous to the woman of letters. Yes. He says things like, well, women don't know how to write about sex properly. <laughs> and Says uh, a man to a woman. Yes, indeed. And, you know, I wish I could tell you that I'd made that up. But I didn't. Yeah, I didn't feel made up. <laughs> <laughs> Way too familiar, yeah. in fact. So so I had a little fun with that in Appendix 1. But then in Appendix 2, I also acknowledge the fact that most novel readers, many novel readers, like a happy ending. So I offer a maybe possibly kind of romantic happy ending as well. So Appendix 1 kind of invites readers to think about what it's really like out there and how hard it is. And Appendix 2 invites readers to say, well, maybe all is not lost. It, it felt fun. Yes. Playful. Yes. A little, it reminded me a little bit of, you know, when my kids were late elementary reading those choose-your-own, choose-your-own <laughs> adventure Choose-your-own adventure, yeah. It's like... Depending on the mood, I'll read Appendix 1 or <laughs> Appendix 2. <laughs> so there's a whole other thread that runs through the book. What was important to you about writing so exuberantly about a menopausal woman's sexuality? Not not a topic 
that's uh, been done to death. <laughs> yes, yeah. No, it is It is interesting. Um, you know, different women experience menopause differently. Um, some just have hot flashes and get really cranky and don't sleep well. But, and I'm, I, you know, this is just from my research. I have read that for some women, menopause is a period of highly charged sexual desire. And I thought, well, that's a really interesting thing to explore. Mm-hmm. And what does that look like in a world where uh, a woman with gray hair um, maybe isn't considered that um, as, a, as a sexual being anymore? So I, I just thought there was a lot of um, possibility for exploration there. I thought it was interesting, too, in terms of, because a lot of the, the other threads are about power dynamics, I thought it was also interesting in terms of a power dynamic because at that point in your life as a woman, you have, it seems like you gain more power because you don't care as much. Yes, that's right. And so in some ways it wouldn't surprise one that you start to be more honest about what you want. Yes, exactly. In all levels of your life. Yes. Yeah, I, I think it is really true that... that uh, as women age, they become um, less concerned about the world things. Like even if you look at the Harvey Weinstein trial, the 20-year-old women didn't know how to say no. Right. But the 30-year-old women knew how to say, no, I'm not doing that. I don't care what it's going to do to my career. So, you know, those years really matter in in terms of of us being able to... um, to take charge of our own our own lives. Yeah. And certainly, yeah, by the time a woman's 50, um, it's like, you don't like it? Tough. What have you got to lose? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, Joanne McKeg, you, you've, you've uh, talked about, you, you know, your bookstore, your independent bookstore, Shelf Life Books here in Calgary. But you're also a publisher of the much-acclaimed freehand books. So you have two very different perspectives um, that influence your writing. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Well, it's it's been fun. And again, with freehand books, as with Shelf Life, um, I went into it as a dreamer with absolutely no understanding or knowledge of the publishing business. So in this case, I partnered with Don LaPan at Broadview Press. And uh, Freehand was an imprint of Broadview for the first, I don't know, seven or eight years of its existence. And again, freehand is just meant to provide an opportunity for for emerging writers to have a voice, to have a place where their work can be heard, and um, it's been it's been delightful. It's been wonderful. Our first year at Freehand Books, we published "Good to a Fault" by Marina Endicott, which like was a Giller nominee and so on and so forth. So, of course, this is our first year and we're going, hey, publishing's a piece of cake. And subsequent <laughs> years, <laughs> subsequent years were, were a little tougher. But Marina, of course, then went on to, um, to, to, to publish with, uh, with a major publisher. Freehand was uh, one of the first publishers of Ian Williams. We published his poetry collection, Personals, and his short story collection, Not Anyone's Anything. And darned if he doesn't go on to win the, uh, the Giller this year for reproduction. But the, the most gratifying uh, occurrence at Freehand, for me anyway, was Holmes. So Holmes came to us as a, 
a memoir of a young Syrian boy who was living in Edmonton, and his ESL teacher was trying to get him to speak English, so drew out this this young man's story and created a book from it. And the book was called Holmes. Um, Bakar was from Holmes in Syria, H-O-M-S, mm-hmm. but the title of the book is Holmes, H-O-M-E-S, to, because it talks about his various homes. And... Um, Holmes has been, it has just, it has set the world alight, you know. It was a Canada Reads selection. It came within one book of winning Canada Reads. And sales are great, accolades are great, but the welcome that this family has gotten from Canada because of this book, that's the most that's amazing thing. That's the most thing. human element Well, of it. it's just, yeah. it just makes, I mean, how could you not be thrilled? And such an example of the power of story. Yes. Because all the people who've read that book have learned so much yeah. from the experience. Yeah, to see this little kid who basically he wants to play soccer and video games with his cousins and he's picking up body parts in the street when he's 10 and 12 years old. Like, Yeah. It just it brings it down to such a personal, human, understandable level. Yeah. That's the power of it, I think. Yeah. yeah. The cover of, of An Honest Woman is uh, it's really pleasing to the eye. It makes you want to kind of fondle it <laughs> <laughs> to stick with the theme of <laughs> sensuality. Uh, well, the, uh, the cover is a work of art by an artist named Betsy Rosenwald. She's, uh, she lives in Saskatoon. She's, she's American, and, uh, but now lives in Saskatoon. I met Betsy before I started going to St. Pete's. I went to Emma Lake Writers and Artists Colony for one year, and that's where I met Betsy. And um, for my first book, Betsy supplied the cover image for that of a stone wall with a gate through it. And uh, and it was a very, um, I, forget, I don't know the right word, repre- representational work of art. But for an honest woman, I went back to Betsy and uh, we went through her studio and looked at what she had. And for me, the abstract image called Hush uh, really, really works for, for this book. I particularly like the sort of, it's almost like, um, like streaks of blood down, down one side, but it's also got a lot of green in it for liveliness and new beginnings. And uh, yeah, to me, it's, uh, it works very, very well for it, the cover of the book. It's a very vibrant, vibrant cover. Definitely, yeah. Uh stands out yeah and I love the title of it now that I know (laughs) (laughs) that what a what a lovely juxtaposition to some of the the story within it yes as a writer I'd say you've you've given readers a delightful story as well as as a marvelous glimpse inside the playful madness of a writer's head Mm. Well, thank you for that. It is, it is, it does get pretty crazy in here. So <laughs> I'm glad I managed to uh, to convey that on the page in a way that uh, that's entertaining. I think that's something that writers have in common. Maybe yes. now readers will know that we're not actually crazy. We're just working on the next project. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Joanne McKeg, for making time for Writer's Block. Thanks very much for having me, Dimphony. In celebration of Black History Month, Cheryl Fogo has just launched the 30th anniversary re-release of her book, Pouring Down Rain, A Black Woman Claims Her Place in the Canadian West. 
Cheryl came of age during the 1960s in Calgary, a time when a black family walking down the street still drew stares from everyone they passed. During her childhood, a community of extended family and friends with roots in the black migration of 1910 across the western provinces worked together to provide intervals of respite from racism. But as an adolescent, Cheryl struggled to understand the negative attitudes towards blackness she and her family encountered and how she was made to feel like an outsider in the only place she ever knew as home. As she explores her ancestry, what comes to light gives her the confidence to claim her rightful place in the Canadian West as a proud black woman. This beautiful, moving work celebrates the black experience and black resiliency on the prairies. For more information about the print edition, which is available on Brush Education's website, the audiobook, which is read by Karen Robinson of Schitt's Creek, is available on ECW Press's website. On February 20th at 7 p.m. at the beautiful Memorial Park Library, join WordFest Presents Desmond Cole, The Skin We're In. Don't miss this provocative and perspective-shifting conversation with one of Canada's most celebrated and uncompromising writers, Desmond Cole. His first book, The Skin We're In, is a vital text for anti-racist and social justice movements in Canada, as well as a potent antidote to the all-too-present complacency of many white Canadians. This event will feature an on-stage interview, followed by a Q&A with the audience and a book signing. Desmond Cole is an award-winning journalist, radio host, and activist in Toronto. His writing has appeared in the Toronto Star, Toronto Life, The Walrus, Now Magazine, Ethnic Isle, Torontoist, BuzzFeed, and The Ottawa Citizen. He hosts a weekly radio program every Sunday on News Talk 1010.